bestbookbits.com presents Fire and Fury, Inside the Trump White House by Michael Wolff, published in 2018. With extraordinary access to the West Wing, Michael Wolff reveals what happened behind the scenes in the first nine months of the most controversial presidency of our time. Since Donald Trump was sworn in as the 45th President of the United States, the country and the world has witnessed a stormy, outrageous and absolutely memorizing presidential term that reflects the volatility and fierceness of the man elected Commander-in-Chief. This riveting and explosive account of Trump's administration provides a wealth of new details about the chaos in the Oval Office. Never before in history has a presidency so divided the American people. Brilliantly reported and absolutely fresh fire and fury shows us how and why Donald Trump has become the king of discord and disunion. The written summary can be found on our website, bestbookbits.com. So without further ado, I bring the book summary of Fire and Fury. A small circle in his campaign didn't think Trump would win the presidency, and they also sort of thought he probably shouldn't. Trump himself wanted to become president to become the most famous man in the world, but it was ambiguous whether or not he wanted to be president. In their eyes, the publicity and the media attention meant they've already won. A win or loss would strengthen his brand even more. At that point, they already crafted his losing message of how the campaign was stolen. Near the end of the campaign, Trump said everything was a shit show and everyone on his team was terrible. He thought it was a losing battle. Even after the Billy Bush interview incident, almost everyone believed there was no way he would become president. Trump and his top lieutenants believed they could get all the benefits of almost become president without having to change their behavior or their fundamental worldview one bit. Usually outside candidates like governors may stand on the virtue of being an outsider, but they still relied on those within to counsel them. The Trump campaign and his advisors had zero experience in politics whatsoever. Readers note, this is very interesting. It seems like the principle that they followed was to be completely authentic because they knew they would lose, but this served as an advantage because they didn't hold back. Second, they didn't follow the traditional norms of politics as none of the advisors even had any experience. Naturally, they would take a deviant course rather than the typical or expected. It makes sense that this cocktail would either burst in flames or be hit. It was a well-known fact that Trump knew nothing about politics, nor the basic intellectual foundation of the job. It was almost a comic understatement. No president before Trump and few politicians ever have come out of the real estate business, a lightly regulated market based on substantial debt with exposure to frequent market fluctuations. It often depends on government favor and his preferred exchange currency for problem cash, money laundering. Trump's physique makeup made it impossible for him to take such a close look at himself. Nor could he tolerate knowing somebody else would know a lot about him and therefore have something over him. And also, why take a close look when there was no chance of winning? Within an hour of winning, he became confused, bewild, then horrified. And then he transformed into someone who believed he deserved to win and was capable of becoming a president. People who knew Trump had to reevaluate how they saw him because he, for the lack of a better word or phrase, pulled the sword from the stone. He was elected and he did it, so there was has to be something validated. Even though before, most within those higher circles dismissed him as a clown prince. 
Trump looked for a license not to conform, not to be respectable. It was something of an outlaw prescription for winning, and winning, however you won, was what it was all about. Trump actually craved media approval. Trump actually craved media approval. But since he could never get the facts right and would never admit it, he would never get media approval. In the words of Sean Spicer, Trump didn't give a fuck at all. He knew what he knew, and if you said otherwise, he wouldn't believe you. Trump's uncensored and spontaneous tweets would be his fundamental innovation in governing. Regular uncontrolled burst of anger. The less likely a presidential candidate is, usually the less experienced and unlikely their aides are. The likely aides are usually attracted to the more likely candidates. One of Bannon's former competitors, while acknowledging his intelligence and ambition, also noted that he's mean, dishonest, and incapable of caring about other people. Conservative media was a great fit for him, not only his angry, contrarian, Roman Catholic side, but it also had low barriers to entry. Liberal media, by contrast with its corporate hierarchies, was much harder to break into. Conservative media is also highly lucrative target market category, with books denominating bestseller list and videos and other products through direct sales avenues. For Bannon and media, you define yourself by your enemy's reaction. Conflict was the media bait, hence the political charm. The new politics was not the art of compromise, but the art of conflict. The real goal was to expose the liberal view. Trump had acquired almost no formal sort of social discipline. He could not even attempt to imitate decorum. He could not even converse in the sense of sharing information or a balanced back and forth conversation. He never particularly listened to what was said to him, nor particularly considered what he said in response. This is one reason why he was so repetitive. Nor did he treat anyone with any sort of basic or reliable courtesy. One theory of Trump's peculiar behavior within the first few weeks of the White House was that he was used to that standard of living. Another theory was that it was the opposite. He was not used to everything, and his entire world flipped upside down. Trump, an old man and creature of habit, had his entire routine and daily life flipped over when he had moved into the White House and adapted to his new environment. Donald was very peculiar about his security and the way he left things in his living area. He also prefers eating at McDonald's because of his fear poisoning. He trusted it would be safe and pre-made since no one would know he was coming. For his nominations, he wanted to choose people he knew and particularly who was loyal and he owed. His staff tried to keep him in an ideal environment bubble where he was surrounded by people who were receptive to him. This would help him perform at his best. In his early days in the White House, he would make unsolicited phone calls to people complaining about his staff and the media and all his grievances without any pretense of confidence. Hence, many of the contacts had no obligation to not leak this information. Trump would go on and on about how he's the victim of all this bad media and fake news and mean comedy. There were several theories about Trump's collusion with Russia and possible connections, as well as the reasons why he held Putin in such high regard. What scared the White House staff the most was not the possibility of this collusion story, but what an investigation would uncover in regards to all the other dealings that would be possible and damaging. There were a lot of good reasons to fire Flynn, even though the president trusted him, and Flynn had Donald Trump's full confidence. 
the organizational chart in the White House was the same as in the Trump organization. There was no real up and down structure, but merely a figure at the top and everyone else scrambling for his attention. It wasn't task-based so much as it was response-orientated. Whatever captured the boss's attention focused everyone's attention. Good management reduces ego. Good management reduces ego. But in the Trump White House, it would seem like nothing happened and really didn't exist if it did not happen in Trump's presence. This made an upside-down kind of sense. If something was out of his view, he could care less. Usually in organizations, things flow from the top down. In Trump's White House, things flowed up, giving him ideas and suggesting they were his own. But many cases, the president didn't know what he wanted and had very contracting ideas. It was his staff trying to interpret his wants and required a lot of guesswork. It was like trying to figure out what a child wants. The central issue of the Trump presidency was that he didn't process any information given to him at all. He didn't really read or even skim. If it was in print, it might as well not exist. Some believe that for all his practical purpose, he was no more than semi-illiterate. Some concluded that he was dyslexic with limited comprehension. Others thought he didn't read because he didn't have to. He was post-literate, total television. Not only didn't he read, he didn't listen. He preferred to be the person talking. And he trusted his own expertise, no matter how more irrelevant than anyone else's. And what's more, he had extremely short attention span, even when he thought you were worthy of attention. The central hypothesis of senior staff was that Trump must know what he's doing, and his intuition must be profound because he managed to become the president. It was transparent and obvious that the president just wanted everyone to like him, and he couldn't comprehend why they couldn't get people to like him. News spread about the inner workings of the White House, but it was actually the discord within the president's mind himself. It was Trump usually talking down on and complaining about his staff and how most of it made no sense or logic. It was a constant battle and war between the three chief of staff figures. This was mildly exacerbated by a running disinformation campaign about them that was being persecuted by the president himself. A chronic naysayer, he viewed each member of his inner circle as a problem child whose fate he held his hand. Mike Pence was seen as an empty suit, not threatening to the president and mostly passive. Some say he was the worst and most passive VP in a long time. Useless in the daily effort to stabilize the president and bring order to the West Wing. With the Jeff Sessions and Russia scandal, Trump told people he was getting outside sources to feed him information about his own government and people. Politics had seemed to become, even before the age of Trump, a zero-sum game. Trump kept insisting that the media and everyone else was lined up to get him. That he was the, the Maitreya and was being treated more unfairly than any other president. Trump would have moments of irrationality. When that happened, he was alone in his anger and not approachable by anyone. His senior staff largely dealt with these dark hours by agreeing with him, no matter what he said. If some of them occasionally tried to hedge, Hope Hicks did not and agreed with all of it. Trump made his famous tweets accusing Obama of wiretapping him during the election. It left him dangling in ignorance and embarrassment. 
In the end, this was another and ultimate example of how difficult it was for the present to function in a literal, definitional, loyally cause and effect political world. It was a turning point. For the most part, Trump's inner circle was game to defend him. After this, everyone except maybe Hope Hicks moved into the state of quasi-sheepishness, if not constant incredulity. Trump had little to no interest in the central Republican goal of repelling Obamacare. While conservative media saw Trump as a creature they created, Trump saw himself as a star that transcended liberal or conservative media. He didn't understand that what conservative media held up is what liberal media would try and take down. If his staff was attacked with indignities by the media, he didn't blame loyalty to him or the nature of liberal media. He blamed his staff and their inability to get good press. Trump thought emotionally, not strategically. Trump thought emotionally, not strategically. The self-righteous and contempt for Trump on the left produced a tsunami clicks in attention from the right. But the president did not get this memo or rather failed to comprehend it. He was looking for media love everywhere. Trump seemed quite profoundly unable to distinguish between political advantage and his personal need. He thought that being president made you famous, and fame was always venerated and adored by the media. This was not a dialectical space that was comfortable for an insecure man. To Trump, the media represented power much more than politics, and he wanted the attention and respect of its most powerful men. Conway and Hicks stood on the idea that the media treated and portrayed Trump unfairly. They don't give him the benefit of the doubt. He's just not treated the way other presidents are treated. The burden for these two women is their understanding that the president did not see the media's lack of regard for him as a part of political divide on which he stood on a particular side. Instead, he perceived it as a deep personal attack on him. For entirely unfair reasons, the media just did not like him. He was a classical misogynist in a way that he saw women as confidants who understood him. Men, although more competent, were people to hold an arm's length. He felt that women were more loyal and understood his needs better. They also had to look good. He understood that he needed extra special handling. Women he saw generally got this more precisely than men especially those who could deal with or saw themselves as tolerant of his casual misogyny and constant sexual subtext. Hope seemed to play the role of Trump's real daughter, and Ivanka, his real wife. Hope was also the president's chief media handler. There was a general agreement in the West Wing that Donald Trump had one of the most dysfunctional communication operations in the modern White House history. Though the president could dish it out very harshly, Nobody thought he could take it in regards to the White House Correspondents' Dinner. Trump felt like everyone had a press strategy for when they got their 15 minutes in the spotlight. And if you couldn't get press directly for yourself, you were a leaker. There was no happenstance news for Trump. To him, all news was manipulated and designed, planned and planted. All news was to some extent fake he understood very well because himself faked it so many times in his career. This is why he gravitated towards the fake news label that even bragged about making stuff up forever and they always print it. 
In presidential annals, the firing of FBI Director James Comrie may be the most consequential move ever made by a modern president acting entirely on his own. The president went rogue outside the knowledge of any of his staff. Another attribute of Trump was his inability to see his actions the way most others saw them, or to fully appreciate how people expected him to behave. Their foreign policy was to question the methods and people who came before them and just do it differently or opposite from how it's been done. One of Trump's deficiencies was his uncertain gasp of cause and effect. Whatever problems might he have caused in the past have been reliably supplanted by new events, giving him the confidence that one bad story can always be replaced by a better, more dramatic one. He can always change the conversation. His Saudi trip should have done that with the Comrie story, but it didn't. Nobody within the staff saw the firing Comrie as a good idea. Trump had the tendency to make everything personal. The president believed he had more power and control than he really had. He believed his talent for manipulating people and bending and dominating them was vastly greater than it was. Senior staff believed the president had a problem with reality, and reality was now overwhelming him. There was now an argument to view that he was hopelessly prone to self-sabotage and his ability to function in the job. Trump and Comrie were contrast. This was revealed in Comrie's testimony. He came across as precise, compartmentalized, scrupulous in his presentation of the details. He was as by the book as it gets. Trump in the way Comrie described was shadowy, shoot from the hip, heedless or even unaware of the rules, deceptive and in it for himself. In Brandon's view, this was a town of institutions and Trump had attacked and revealed against the institutions from day one. And now this was clashing of Trump and the institutions who were neither quick nor seemingly willing to change and adapt as quickly as the private sector to the markets, which is what Trump is used to. Many of his tweets were not spontaneous utterances, but constant ones. Trump had a lifelong sense that people were constantly taking unfair advantage of him. Probably came from his father's lack of generosity or his own awareness of being a rich kid, and no doubt his insecurities about this, or from his negotiator's understanding that it is never win-win. Trump could not abide the knowledge that someone was getting a leg up at his expense. The Trump tweet dynamic follows as it ununified liberal opinion against him, then unified the opposite for him. He was often never fully aware of the nature of what he said, nor fully cognizant of why there should be such a passionate reaction to it. He would often question and ask people what he said when he got severe blowback. This lack of calculation and inability to be political was part of his political charm. This is why the segment of diehard supporters would let him get away with something as extreme as shooting someone and was largely unfazed and maybe inspired by every new expression of Trump. Trump had provided a new novel narrative, very fast and emotional, and dramatic story to the news, media, government, the public sector. And this wasn't because he was changing or upsetting the fundamentals of the American life. In six months as president, failing to master almost any aspect of the bureaucratic process, he had accomplished practically speaking nothing. 
there was almost no other story in America and in much of the world. That was the radical and transformational nature of the Trump presidency. It held everybody's attention. On the other hand, constant hysteria did have one unintended political virtue. In every new event, cancelled out of every other event, then you always survived another day. Not unusual for a family-run company, Trump made everybody compete for his favor. The company was about him. It existed because of his name, personality, and charisma. So the highest standing in the company was reserved for those who could best serve him. The meeting with the commissioner and Donald Jr. and the Russians was completely visible and total mess up. Bannon called them a bunch of geniuses for this poorly executed meeting. The president and his team communicated their official story, a cover-up essentially, that there was no collusion with Russia during the campaign. The Russian meeting became a bigger deal after more figures came into the mix and Trump and his family were panicking and running their own defense. Short-term headlines were overwhelming any sort of long-term strategy. A member of the legal team said, The worst thing you could do is lie to a prosecutor. Just when you felt on top of the world in the Trump administration, you could probably count on being cut down. That was the price of one-man leadership, insecure man leadership. The other, biggest guy in the room, always had to reduce in size. Trump was the one variable that, in management terms, simply could not be controlled. He was like a recalcitrant two-year-old. If you try to control him, it would only have the opposite effect. Trump was stubborn about condemning neo-Nazis, the KKK, and white supremacists after the Charlottesville terrorist attack. The Trump White House tried to find any small reason to make an outing a work event rather than a vacation or trip or time off. In the wake of Trump's defense for the Nazis in Charlottesville, it was clear and apparent to everyone that Trump could not control himself. Trump wanted to be liked so badly that everything is a struggle for him. This translated into the need for constantly to win something, anything. Equally important, it was essential that he look like a winner. Of course, trying to win without consideration, plan or clear goals had in the course of the administration's first nine months resulted in almost nothing but losses. At the same time, confounding all political logic that lacked a plan and impulsivity that helped create the disruptiveness that seemed so joyously shatter the status quo for so many. But now the novelty was wearing off. By the first three quarters of the first year, most if not all of the senior staff lost hope in this thing working. Now their central call and aim was to prevent something worse from happening moving forward. Everyone on his staff struggled with expressing the extremely obvious fact that the president did not know enough, did not know what he didn't know, did not particularly care, and to boot what is confident, if not serene, in his unquestioned certitudes. The constant legal danger formed part of the higher barrier to getting people to come work in the West Wing. Bannon claims there is a 1 in 3 chance he will get impeached. 1 in 3 chance he will resign in the wake of a threat by the cabinet to act on the 25th Amendment. 1 in 3 chance that he will limp to the end of his term. In any event, there will not be a second term or even an attempt at one. And that's a wrap on Fire and Fury. 
subscribe to our channel, and take a look at the hundreds of book summaries uploaded previously. To find hundreds of written summaries, check out our website, bestbookbits.com. And for hundreds of audio podcast summaries, find us on mixcloud.com forward slash bestbookbits. Like and share if you got something from this summary, and comment on what one thing stood out for you. Thanks for watching, and have yourself an amazing day. Take care.